Great teaching yesterday, yesterday. For those of that you, you were there, uh, you probably share that sentiment. I feel completely filled up uh, spiritually with the full tank, and there's, there's so much in a day like that. Yeah, full bucket. Um, <coughs> and uh, there's a lot of things you always think like, oh, I've got such a long list of things, but my one takeaway from yesterday was to memorize the Beatitudes because I realized that it's the kind of thing which... If you memorize it, and that works for me. If I memorize scriptures, I tend to dwell on it. I tend to meditate on it. They tend to pop into my mind at various random times when it's relevant. Uh, I started this morning with the first one, Matthew 5, verse 4. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, it's, I think it will keep me busy for quite a while, uh, absorbing, I think, the magnitude of the Beatitudes. Uh, after that whole morning of teaching, I'm like, okay, what can I add today? But uh, <laughs> just like eating, we didn't finish all the food and the biscuits yesterday, so uh, we'll eat some more. And uh, I am going back to my series on, uh, on the letters of John as a quick recap. Uh, today we're going to go to the, to the letter of Second John and talk about uh, walking in the truth. Well, what is truth? But before that, a quick review. We finished 3 John the last time and a quick summary of what we learned from the letter of 3 John. Uh, it is a personal letter that the Apostle Ron, uh, John writes to his uh, friend Gaius. And the big question there is uh, a question that we need to keep on asking each other is, is it well with your soul, my brother and sister? Uh, let's let's uh, make, take care of each other and make sure it's, it is well with our souls. We also learned that love is shown by the way, um, love is shown through hospitality. And we also learned that um, not to fear strangers, but to love them. And then lastly, to imitate what is good, what, not what is evil. And the way to do that is to imitate the model of Jesus. That's kind of my summary of John's third letter. Now, second John is, of course, if you're trying to find it, it is as small as 3 John, one page if you have a physical Bible. Same place, just before 3 John, just before the book of Revelation. And it's actually one verse shorter than 3 John. Uh, it is written from either Ephesus or the island, island of Patmos, where uh, John was in exile and, and spent his final days. Historians differ on that, on exactly which one of the two it is. It doesn't really matter that much. Uh, the application of the letter doesn't change. Um, so let's uh, turn your Bibles, or swipe, or scroll, or click, or tap, or whatever you want to, how you get there, to Second John. And we're only going to read verse 1 to 4 to start off with today. Even though it's short, we're not going to read the whole letter. <coughs> Second John 1. Verse 1, the elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, who I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy 
to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. Right, who is this uh, very short letter written to? A lady. A lady, yeah, a lady. It says, to the lady, chosen by God. Now, this, uh, this phrase has been very much debated and discussed by commentators and theologists. Um, any thoughts on who the lady might be? So it's written to the lady and her children. Yes, Anita? It could be the church. That's one of the views. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it could be written in, uh, to the church rather than to a specific lady, a specific person. Um, if we go and look at the Greek, uh, does this work? Ah, the, 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 the chosen lady is the words used here. Chosen, the Greek is uh, eklekta kyria. Eklekta means the selected or the favorite or the chosen out or the elected, the, the one of choice. And kyria is the feminine of kurios, which is lord or master. So, in English, it is lady in the sense of the lord and the lady of the manor, kind of, that kind of lady. It's not just to the woman, but to the lady. Um, so, they, it can be debated and discussed. I, see, I think it's interesting here, the concept uh, that the lady has been chosen by God. So, the one view is that, oh, it's written to a church. The other view is that it's a specific lady. And, uh, I mean, if we think through the Bible, are there other ladies or women that were chosen by God? Is it something unique? Can you think of any women who were specifically chosen by God? Yeah. Mary, the mother of Jesus, yeah. She was clearly told, you've been chosen. Who else have been were chosen by God? Priscilla. Possibly. It doesn't specifically say that, but it seems like she was chosen to fulfill a certain role. There are several in the Old Testament, several women in the Old Testament who uh, Miriam was, was chosen. Um, Ruth, Ruth, you, you could say was chosen. The other Mary, yes, yeah. Mary and Martha Mary, and, and, and the other Mary probably as well. Uh, yes. Hannah, Hannah was uh, chosen. So, so I, the idea of as a, as a lady to be chosen by God is, is not unique. Whether it is a single lady or the church, um, why would we think it would be the church? Well, we, we didn't read that. Yes, Mulligan. Curia, uh, it means Lord. Lord, and yeah. The church is normally like a, uh, there's like the Lord and there's the church. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, and this, you're, you're talking about Ephesians 5, where it says the relationship between the Lord and the church. Mary? The, bride the bride of Christ. In Ephesians, it says the church is the bride of Christ. The church is like a lady. Um, so either of those could be, uh, could be valid, I think, ways to look at it. There is a clue at the end of the letter, which we didn't read, but in verse 13... John closes off his letter by saying, the children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. That kind of adds to the mystery. Oh, does this lady have a sister who is with John? And he say, she sends greetings, and she with her children sends greetings to you and your children. Maybe it's a family thing. 
Or maybe it is, oh, from this church, I'm in this church, and we're writing to you. And you know how people travel from church, between churches, and say, oh, we bring you greetings, not just from us, but from our whole church. That's kind of, we are this big church family. So I think uh, it's not worth disputing about it. Uh, it's, it's interesting to, to, to think about these things, but uh, whether it's a single lady or whether it's the church, I think there is a, an important concept here of being chosen by God, and uh, uh, which is a, a concept that, that's, again, in theology, been disputed over hundreds of years, and religious wars were fought about it, this whole concept of being elected. And uh, John Calvin, and in Calvinism, it's a very fundamental concept of, well, you can't choose God, God chooses you. This kind of impossibility that you can repent and you can make the decision to turn to God and, and become a Christian. Calvin said, no, 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 that's impossible. It's, uh, Luther had the same concepts, like, no, God chooses you. You can only respond to his choice. And then the Catholics and the Protestants fought wars about things like that. Um, but there's a concept of, of God chooses. And the very fact that you're sitting here today, yes, maybe like you guys said, you decided to come, but you also decided to come because God chose you and said, do you want to come? It's a bit like being chosen for a team. You know, it's a, you stand there and say, I want to play, I want to play. Okay, I'll choose you. And maybe it's both. We decide and God chooses. And sometimes we get chosen and then we decide to say, okay, since you've chosen me, I'll come. Or sometimes we say, I want to do it, and there's like, an, oh, okay, I'll choose you since you're so keen to be on the team. That's kind of how I resolve that difficulty and that concept. Leon? It's a bit like, it's a bit like uh, being interviewed for a job and get chosen for the job and you choose to turn up. Exactly, yeah, that's another good analogy. Chosen for the job, you chose, choose to, to turn up. Um, a lot of people wrestle with this because it's, a, it's kind of a difficult concept in terms of theological fairness. When people say, but is it fair that how come I've been chosen to be saved and you know, there's some person somewhere in deepest, darkest Africa who hasn't had the opportunity yet and, and that's not fair. How come I've had this? Or you know, someone in North Korea, which is a communist country with, where religion is banned, how come they're not chosen and I am chosen? Um, it, it's, it, it is difficult concepts to, to wrestle with, uh, but I think the fact that we are here shows that we are chosen and we can help other people to be chosen as well. Uh, to be chosen doesn't mean that others are excluded from being chosen. So this is just uh, some, some opening thoughts just from the, from the start of the letter. Um, the bottom line is that the application of the rest of the letter is, doesn't change, whether you see it as a lady, an individual lady, or a church that the letter is written to. There's a word here in, this, uh, in these first four verses. Which word do you think appears five times? Let's repeat it. Five times in just these opening verses. Truth. truth. Yeah, five times it says truth. It says to the lady chosen, and to her, I love in the truth, also all who know the truth, and because of the truth, it lives in us, and uh, all these things, grace, mercy, peace, will be with us in truth, 
And I'm so happy because I find your children walking in the truth. This is a key concept in this letter, and as we move along through it, you'll see why and, and why it's so important. Um, but then also, further on, twice in this passage, it's mentioned love. And then further on, as you read the rest of the letter, you'll find that three more times the word love occurs. Uh, in verse 5 and twice in verse 6, which is what my next lesson will be about, verse 5 and 6. Um, so I said, five times truth equals five times love, if you like maths. <laughs> the, the concepts of truth and love are inseparable. And when we do separate them, things go wrong and it doesn't quite work. If we have truth without love, we become like the Pharisees where everything is about doctrine and about doing the right things, all about the rules, but there's no love. And if there's love without truth, then it very easily becomes all mushy-mushy and, you know, let's just all hug each other and be happy. And there's anything goes as long as we love, you know. Both of those can go wrong without the kind of the balance between truth and love. And, and we even see that in, in the very beginning of, of John, when it announces the arrival of Jesus, it says, he came full of grace and truth. And then in verse 17, it says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, you may rightly say, that doesn't talk about love. It says grace. But grace is an expression of love. So we, we can have a, that discussion Later, if you want to dispute and discuss that further, but it shows the concept that these, there needs to be balance in truth. Truth cannot stand just on its own. It needs love to, to really make it uh, effective and valuable. So, truth. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult concept, this thing about truth. Truth is important. Uh, and it is also tough. Uh, advocate Tuli Marancela, she's a, the South African, she was, she just finished her term as the, the public protector. Advocate is, uh, in English terms, she would be QC, Tuli Marancela QC. The public protector is a role in South Africa to protect the public from the government. That's about the best way I can say it. So if you feel like you're being mistreated by the government, you go to the public protector and you can bypass the government and go to the high court with your case. But she said, busy pardon? Busy woman. Oh, extremely busy, extremely busy. In South Africa, I tell you. Anyway, and very controversial. Um, she said, for people who want the truth, people who want the truth, adequate evidence is enough. But for those who don't want the truth, overwhelming evidence is inadequate. <laughs> and I sometimes have this conversation with atheists and people like you know, who, want, who dispute God and who dispute the Bible and want to dispute about Jesus. And, and I've realized that no matter how much evidence you give them, they will always say, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And they will always be because they're not really seeking truth. And for those who really seek truth, even though there remain a bit of doubt, the evidence will always be sufficient. And even in our law, there's a concept of reasonable doubt and beyond reasonable doubt. It's like, in, you know, some things you can never 100% be certain of and 100% prove, but 
you know, if you get to 99.9%, .9%, then uh, that is good enough. It's almost, it's good enough, as close to the truth as you can get, that it doesn't really matter about the little last bit. And uh, if you don't understand that, ask my wife. She's a statistician. She will explain all of that to you about <laughs> confidence intervals and one sigma and two sigma and up to six sigma. Uh, but that, that should be our, our uh, that is where faith comes in. It, it kind of fills that gap between sufficient evidence and the things we don't understand and the things we can't really ever completely know. Like, you know, was the Earth really created in six physical days or is it a, 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 like a metaphor of time and was it six ages, etc. No, it's like, well, if that is your only evidence for God, then yes, you're on shaky ground. But if you put all the evidence together, then there is more than sufficient evidence. And then it comes back to this point is, do you really want to know? Do you really want the truth? Are you really seeking truth? Then you will get to a point where you say, okay, I'm convinced it's enough. I don't need more. But if you're not really seeking truth, you will always try and pick holes and try and say, oh, yeah, about, uh, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about that bit there. And, and how about that bit there? It's like, you know what? You don't really want truth. You're just looking for excuses, actually. Um, St. Augustine said, when regard for truth has been broken down or even slightly weakened, all things will remain doubtful. That's kind of the other side of the coin that even though we say, you know, when you seek truth, evidence doesn't need to be 100%. What we do believe in, once you decide, okay, I've got enough evidence, that truth needs to be solid. And we need to have deep convictions about the truth that we do believe in. Because when we start shifting and wavering on truth, and, and especially on spiritual truth, then suddenly you open the door for all kinds of doubts. And then when you, once you have one doubt, then another one can come in. It's like, well, if, if I'm not sure about that, then maybe something else I'm also not sure about. And, and, and that, especially with some of the foundational teachings of our faith, uh, when we say, well, I'm not so sure if, if Jesus is really the only way, I mean, that's, that's kind of harsh. You know, I know some really good, sincere people. Mm, let, me, let me leave that one on the side for a while. That, that's a bit of a tough truth. And we kind of start doubting. Then when we start doing that, that's what Augustine's basically saying, is that you know, when you slightly weaken or break down the truth, then you open the door for doubts and you start saying, well, if I'm not sure about that, then maybe there's something else I'm not sure about either. And one thing leads, leads to another. So, um, yeah, truth is important. <coughs> there's, a, there's a famous scene, a well-known scene uh, in a movie that, um, I forgot his name now, is it Jack Nicholson? Uh, with this guy that's a in a military court. And a famous scene where Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. And, and pardon? A few, good a few good men. A few good men. I couldn't remember the name of the movie. A few, few good men. And, uh, and then it's like in, this guy says, but I want the truth. We want to know the truth. We need to know the truth. And then he comes up and says, well, can you handle the truth? You can't handle the truth. That's your problem. 
You can't handle the truth. Sometimes the truth is tough. And sometimes the truth, I don't, know, I don't have a reference for this, but someone said, the truth shall make you free, but first it shall make you angry. Because sometimes the truth is tough, and it can stir up all kinds of emotions. I know when I started studying the Bible, I grew up in church, I did catechisms, I wrote exams to become a Christian, you know, to be confirmed as a Christian. I thought I knew my stuff. And when my friend started studying the Bible with me and he showed me some truths in the Bible, I had some disagreements with him because the truth that he showed me was like, whoa, no, I don't like this. One of my first reactions was, I grew up in an Afrikaans church and I read my Bible in Afrikaans. And uh, since he was English, he studied the Bible with me in English. And he showed me, I'm like, nah, I don't trust this English Bible. Next time I'm bringing my Afrikaans Bible, then we'll see. <laughs> but when the truth hurts, you become angry. And, and it takes a while. You have to get over that anger to be truly set free. Jesus had exactly that experience in John 8. When he said to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They were all about truth, these people who were teaching uh, and following him, and, and they were Pharisees, and they were teachers of the law, the experts in truth. And he said, well, you need to hold to my teaching if you really want to know the truth. And that, that severely upset them. They did not like that. And uh, in fact, because of that, they got so angry they wanted to kill him. In verse 40, uh, he comes back on them and, and he says, As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. The truth can be tough sometimes. And there's all kinds of truths. Um, you know, there is the truth of simple things in life where it's like, oh, well, shall we dispute about that? Um, I have a sweater which my wife insists well, it's, it's, uh, it, it's gone to a better place now, to a charity shop or somewhere. But my wife always insisted that it is, that it is uh, what is it, black or blue, the navy blue? Or, and I insisted, no, it's blue. And, and she said, no, it's black. And, and, and we never resolved the dispute about the truth of the color of this, uh, of this sweater. <laughs> it never got to that, to that point. <coughs> I couldn't handle the real truth, yes. It was convenient to sidetrack the discussion to the color of it, yes. <laughs> but uh, you know, Jesus brought some tough truths. And a lot of his statements and his teachings uh, are tough. They, they, they challenge our hearts. They challenge our thinking. They challenge the world. Not just us who believe, but they challenge the world. They challenge the principles and the morals of the world and the beliefs of the world. Um, the Bible says in Psalm 117, in, in verse 2 of John, he says, the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. <clears throat> the expectation is that when we become Christian, he's talking to, to other Christians, of course, and he says, this truth lives in us. 
that's very much part of becoming a Christian too, is to accept that truth and say, this is mine now. I'm going to hold to this truth. I, these are the convictions I hold to for the rest of my life. And, uh, you know, that truth doesn't change. It, it will be with us forever. Now, if you think about some truths, just in your short lifespan, and, and let's say everybody who's here has had a short lifespan for now, um, no names mentioned, what truths can you think of in this world that has changed just in your lifespan? This day. Man United at being, was that ever true? <laughs> Man United being the best team in the world. Yeah, it used to be true, but no, it's not true anymore. Barry. <laughs> yeah, the old global one. Now it's nonsense. Yes, it's true. Um, was it Andier? Bill. No, I just said Watford's the best team. <clears throat> Watford's the best team. Okay, so some truths are still persistent and to this day. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. Women can't do certain things. Yes, exactly. Like, you know, it's uh, some of it is still true, but. The world was round, but now it's flat. The world was round, but now it's flat, and then it, or it was flat, and then it became round, and now apparently it's flat again. <laughs> there was a truth that uh, the truth of washing your hands kills germs. That was never true, until was it Pasteur or was it uh, Louis Pasteur that said, "No, these things are germs, and you know, it's like if you wash your hands, you'll kill them." And like, nah, can't be. In this world, some truths change. Um, these are practical things as science finds out more things. But even in morality, things that were not okay in the past is now okay. You know, things that were crimes in the past is now not a crime anymore. And things that were not a crime in the past is now suddenly a crime. This world, truth is a very fluid thing. And, and the whole concept of absolute truth is more and more being rejected by this world. And that is where the Bible and Jesus becomes very challenging. It says, well, can you really handle the truth? This truth that in the Psalms it says, the truth of the Lord is everlasting. What God has declared as true does not change. It doesn't change between yesterday and, and tomorrow. It doesn't change in our short lifespans. It doesn't change in generations. It is everlasting. And that's why we can still use the same Bible that we used 2,000 years ago. I'm sure Penny will not use a medical handbook that the Egyptians wrote 2,000 years ago. Uh, maybe some of it, but uh, no, no, she says no. <laughs> because some of the prescriptions in there would be, you know, you need to take some bat droppings and some lizard tongue and boil that up and apply that to the wound kind of thing. And I was like, no, that's not true anymore. Um, some things, you know, but, but the Bible, 2,000 years old, doesn't matter. It is still as true as the day it was written. Because the truth of the Lord is everlasting. The world we live in doesn't like truth like that. Because, you know, as it's very much in the humanity. We like to change things to suit ourselves. God is called the God of truth in Psalms. In John, Jesus says, thy word is truth. God's word is truth. When we open the Bible, that is unchangeable truth. 
Jesus himself came and says, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a hard teaching. It's a hard teaching when Jesus said, and then he follows that on by saying, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Tough truths. It's a type of question like, whoa, if you accept that truth, then it kind of like, whoa, it has some serious consequences. It makes people angry when you say that. When you walk around and say, well, you know, of course there are some good people, but goodness doesn't get you to heaven. <gasps> really? But how can good people not go to heaven? Well, that's the truth. I didn't make the, I, it's not my truth, it's Jesus' truth. But that's the truth we accept, and that Augustine was saying, don't start wavering and watering down these tough truths of the Bible either, because when we start doing that, then we open the door to all kinds of other things. And that's a, that's a tough challenge. It's a challenge in Christianity and in, in our religious world. It's a challenge in the world we live in, in the secular world we live in, where the world makes their own rules. Um, and it's so easy to compromise and, and just slightly adjust the truth to make it sound better. So, for example, I don't know, oh, the, it's a little bit bright in here, so maybe you won't recognize, maybe some of you will recognize, that's Daniel Rowden. Um, Paul Rowden's son, he's, uh, I, I guess he would probably be going to the next Olympics. He's in the Team GB athletics team for running 800 meters. And um, so uh, I, used to, I used to train with him. I was like his training partner. Uh, on staff meetings, he did a one-year challenge. And uh, before staff meeting, we would meet up and go for a run in, uh, in Regent's Park. And you, know, you, you tell, say something like that. I always tell people, oh, yeah, you know, one day when he's on the podium at the Olympics, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, I used to be his training partner. <laughs> <laughs> but what happens, he's got a seven-day training program, and, he, and he's got a rest day. And on his rest day, he still does a run. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I would go run with him on his rest day. <laughs> and he would still run away from me. <laughs> And we just do a 4K run up to the top of, this photo was on Primrose Hill at the, at the top of Regent's Park looking out over London. And if I would say, you know what, I, I was in a race with uh, Daniel Rowden. And you know what? I came second and he came second from last. How does that sound? That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? What do you think? I mean, against Daniel, I came second? Now, how do you think, what, what's twisted there? How many people were in the race? How many people do you think were in the race? Just me and Daniel. So if I came second, then I came last, actually. And if he came second from last, then he actually won the race. <laughs> so actually, you know, the two of us, I mean, he ran away from me, and then he waits for me on top of the hill. And then eventually, if I survive it, then I arrive, and I go, <laughs> it's like, and he's like, not, he's hardly breathing. And it's like, shall we wait? Do you want to recover? <laughs> And he just stands there, it's like, okay, let's go. And then we run back, and he, I run straight, and he goes, he makes loops. He makes loops, and he comes back, and then he runs a bit with me, and then he makes another loop, and he runs a bit with me. My only goal is by the end of the year that we ran with him is to finish with him at the end, uh, with him doing all his loops, uh, which I did actually two weeks before, the, before we finished. So that would be like me doing four Ks and him doing six Ks. 
the point is here, I, I, we can twist the truth to make it sound kind of good and different. It's like, oh yeah, you know, I came second and he came second last. But the truth of the Bible is, we, we cannot water it down. The truth of things that Jesus says, I am the only way, we cannot water it down. As, as tough as it is and with all the implications that it has, it is true and we cannot change that. And, and we can say things to make it more convenient, but it doesn't change anything. Um, you know, I love Africa, I love animals. Um, let's see if you know African animals. Who knows an elephant? I mean, you should all know what an elephant is. Okay, how many legs does an elephant have? Four. Four, right. But that big trunk thing, you know, at the front, of, uh, that is as big as a leg. What if I call the trunk a leg? How many legs does it now have? Five. Four. No, just because I decide to call the trunk a leg doesn't make it a leg. It still only has four legs. And that is the, the reality of, of biblical truth is that we cannot change it to suit ourselves. And even if we do change it, it doesn't change the truth. The truth remains what it is. John writes here and he says, you know, this truth lives in us as Christians. In verse 4, it says, he writes to this lady and he says, it has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. And I think by, by, by saying some of your children, I, I don't think it means that, oh, you know, some of the church are walking in the truth and some are not. I think it's more like, oh, I've met some of your church and, you know, they're great people. I found that they're walking in the truth. It's more like, you know, he's met some of them. And when he's met them, he found that they are walking in the truth. What does it look like to walk in the truth? What are some of the, what would it look like? What does it look like for us? What does it look like to walk in the truth? Some thoughts. Humility. Pardon? Humility. Humility, yeah, humility. Do not be proud about, you, you can be very arrogant about the truth. Yeah, uh, Danny, Aneta, Aneta, <laughs> sorry, Aneta. To say things as they are. Yeah, to share the truth. That's walking the truth is to share, to, to say it as it is. Danny? We talked about yesterday about when you walk in the truth when you're white, you get persecuted. Yeah, if you walk in the truth, you will get resistance. People will get angry. You may get persecuted. Yeah, staying connected in the truth, uh, strengthening the truth by, by, by reading and studying. Simon? Sorry, what's that about? Burdens by the troubles of this life. Yeah. Oh, not being burdened by it. Oh, yeah. That, that's like part of the truth of the Bible is the promises. And if, we, and, and if we allow ourselves to be burdened by the challenges of the life, we're kind of like discarding the truth of so many of the encouraging scriptures in the Bible. Things, you know, where God says it's going to be okay and just persevere. It's all part of the truth. Good point. Yes, Kate. Um, obedience. Obedience, yeah. Walking the truth is obedience. Truth and obedience are as closely connected as truth and love. 
We can go on and on and on. To walk in the truth is really just practically living the Christian life, living out what we see in the scriptures. We're going to finish off with uh, communion and reflecting on the death of Jesus on the cross and what role the truth play in his death on the cross. When Jesus appeared before Pilate, he was brought before Pilate and accused of being the king of the Jews. And that's why the why the Jews said to Pilate, well, he deserves the death sentence because there can only be one king, and that's Caesar, or the king that you appoint, which was Herod, um, so he's a rebel. That's why he deserves to die. So Pilate says, oh, you are a king then, when he was interviewing Jesus. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate retorted. That is the kind of uh, response that if the truth gets inconvenient, then you start questioning it. It's, ah, true. what is truth? Every, you know, everyone has his own truth. And how can you come and say that everyone who's on the side of truth listens to me? It's like, wow, pff, what is truth? But Jesus died for the truth. And because of the truth, he died because he was a king. And he died because he said, I um, where do you say that? Oh, sorry. I'm thinking back to John 8. He said, the truth I bring is what God gave me. The Jews said he must die because he claims to be God. Is that the truth? The truth is he is God. He is the son of God. So he died for those two truths, for being the king and for being God, being the son of God. And when he was confronted with the, the realities of the truth that he came to proclaim, the challenge, I think, for any one of us would be to slightly water it down, to twist it a bit, to think, how can I kind of just get out of this and not give up on the truth? Or maybe it's like, well, maybe it's not completely true after all. But Jesus stood steadfastly right through to the death on the cross because of the truth that he proclaimed and because he was not willing to compromise or give up the truth that he came to earth for. And the reason he did that was because of that other part, that love, that balances with truth. Because that's the, that was his core motivation. And when we struggle with the truth, when we struggle with telling the truth or holding on to the truth, let's remember that Jesus died out of love for us, but he also died for this truth that, uh, that now lives in us. Let's pray for the bread and the wine. Dear God and Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for sending Jesus to this earth to proclaim truth to us and that the truth that he brought uh, stands us in good stead in his life, God. Thank you, Father, that you revealed it to us. Father, thank you that your truth lives in uh, every disciple of you today. Father, thank you for 
sending your son to the cross and uh, letting, allowing him to die for the truth. Jesus, thank you for holding on to the truth, even to the point of death on the cross. Father, as we have this bread and this fruit of the vine, please bless it in our bodies. And please uh, continue to forgive us our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.